Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On today's episode, we debate a term that to the left is often argued that it simply means a progressive awareness of the forces shaping the world around us, but to the right, it signifies an overcomplicated, impenetrable, and distinctly Gen Z worldview with constant critique, stifling free expression. The word woke. American philosopher Susan Neiman's recent book, Left is Not Woke, looks into some of these debates. She's not the first academic some might assume would take aim at progressive left leanings, being self-described as a leftist and a socialist. Joining her in conversation is our host today, the cultural critic Thomas Chatterton-Williams. If you want to listen to a longer extended version, become a member to Intelligence Squared today by heading over to intelligencesquared.com membership or by subscribing on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to keep up to date with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, events with Rory Stewart, Mary Beard, Michael Lewis and much more, do sign up to our newsletter via the link in the episode description. But now let's join Thomas Chatterton-Williams speaking to Susan Neiman about her book, Left is Not Woke. Hi. Thank you for tuning in. Well, why don't we just get right into it? Um, I know you're aware of the, the the trouble here. It's it's something that's also affected me. But at this point in the terms contentious history, so many people object even to the use of the word woke or wokeness. I feel like we should just start by um, setting out a clear working definition of what we're even talking about when we talk about wokeness. That's, um, yeah, I get asked that question too. And of course... <laughs> attacked for using the term because of it's you know it's only a term of abuse at this point um, no one wants to admit to being woke actually what i was trying to do in the book was more to define what left is than what woke mm-hmm. is because um, i actually think we're much more confused about what left is than about what woke is i mean um i can i can uh, you know i have sort of three counter um, ideas to try to define woke, and it's in contrast to what le- liberal left is. Um, number one, um, the left is universalist, and the woke are tribalist. Number two, the liberal left cares about a conception of justice that's distinct from a conception of power, even if those two are very difficult to um, distinguish sometimes. And three, the liberal left believes in the possibility, although not the necessity of progress, and also believes that there's been progress in history. I I certainly think a lot of people who might um, consider themselves to be woke, consider themselves to be concerned with progress, but they don't believe any of it has actually taken place. So when you meet somebody who says, you know, we're still living under the patriarchy and nothing has changed, or um, nothing has really changed since slavery, um, you know, we're just living under new forms, you realize, okay, you've met somebody who's woke. A really interesting moment happened to me recently when I was having a discussion with um, a group of international left-leading people in Berlin from different countries with, uh, with a certain, mostly a rather woke um, set of beliefs. And a couple of them really attacked me for using the word tribalist. Someone... A person of color said, well, he was a member of the Yoruba tribe and he saw this as a good thing. And, um, you know, he didn't like it being used as a negative term. A couple of 
other people who would be identified as white, but were very concerned to be taking the position of non-white people said that it was, uh, you know, I was offending indigenous cultures. I was offending Native Americans. I shouldn't use and all that. And about a week later, a person of color who's a part of this whole group, but wasn't actually um, there on that uh, on that evening, he was away, tweeted a quote of James Baldwin's saying, when are we ever going to move away from this tribalism? <laughs> and I think <laughs> one of, the, one of the, the things that really defines um, a woke standpoint is that there are certain things that James Baldwin can say that I can't say. That is the so-called positionality, which used to be what people right. consider uh, ad hominem, uh, is much more important than anybody's arguments or reasons. Um, so, and and that in itself, of course, is um, is something that's I would say not left but woke. Yeah, standpoint epistemology is what uh, my friend Glenn Glenn Lowry calls it. I think it's a difference between um, cultural and political claims. Um, obviously, if we all were you know, confined to some kind of monoculture, the world would be an immensely poorer place. And it's certainly possible to value and cherish particular things that you got from your culture. Um, you know, I look, um, sometimes I'm really happy to be around non-Jewish -Jew New Yorkers because they get Jewish jokes, okay? Um <laughs> it's fairly rare that people who aren't Jewish get Jewish jokes, and that's a source of pleasure to me. Okay, um, you know, one can name other things. Are there? There? I mean, I I count myself as being from a bunch of different tribal identities. One is expat Americans. You know, I think you and I understand each other in certain ways because there's something that other Americans and people from other cultures don't get about the experience of being an expat American. It's a complicated and interesting experience. So, you know, once again, or I cherish sometimes um, being alone with women. There are certain kinds of conversations that women have usually when men are not around, and um, those can be quite meaningful. So that's fine. All right. I, I, I see no problem with that at all. In fact, in the book, I sort of I, I use this metaphor that I think works of the difference between flesh and bones, you know, that flesh comes in shape, different shapes and colors and um, is interesting and um, worth looking at in the same way that cultures are and particular histories are. But the bones are what hold us together and bind us together. And it even occurred to me after I, after the book was already in press or printed, that actually the bones are what's left of us after we're gone, which is an interesting fact. So I don't see a conflict between being a cultural pluralist and a political universalist. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things. And it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. 
Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Right. But so then that leads me to the other question that your initial response prompted, which was, what do you see as the reason for the lack of optimism or the, the, the kind of negativity, the, the sense that, you know, this is just a new Jim Crow or we're still, you know, enslaved by other means or the patriarchy never uh, lets up, it's, lets, let, gets up off of us. What is it that um, leads to such a fatalist worldview and how did the left go in that direction from where it had been? Um, in the last century and things were much more optimistic? I think there's, there's a historical and a theoretical answer. And in the book, I mostly talk about the theoretical answer. I think it's the um, really disastrous influence of Michel Foucault, even among people who don't read him or don't read very much of him. If you went to college in the 80s or 90s, the book you most likely read, if you read one book of philosophy or theory, is Discipline and Punish, okay? It's a very powerful, in many ways, brilliant book because it takes the one, you know, apparently unquestionable achievement of the Enlightenment, the abolition of torture, or at least the attempt to abolish torture, and it deconstructs it and makes this argument that actually, well, we got rid of public, uh, well, it doesn't have to be public death by torture, but what we did in the penal system was actually more, uh, more insidious and more, uh, more powerful, okay? Um, it's an interesting move. I talk about it at some length in the book, but that idea, which comes as far as I know from Foucault, you can also get some of it, by the way, in Adorno and Horkheimer, that you think you're making progress. Uh, and so in what's called critical theory, I mean, it's all you know mushed together. You think that you're making progress in some way, but actually there's a, a much more subversive way in which you're only submitting to a further form of domination. And again, even if you turned out not to read any of these books in the 70s, 80s, or 90s when you went to school, um, some journalists did, or several journalists did. And you can read these kinds of claims in uh, basically any newspaper, all right? It's just, it, it is the most common 
trope. Oh, let me describe something that looks like a form of progress and let me show how smart I am by deconstructing it and show that actually it had downsides. Okay. But not just that it had downsides. I mean, it's perfectly important to show that steps forward can have downsides. Um, But it's, it, it fundamentally destroys itself this step forward, right? Um, and you, you know, it's it's so um, it annoys me so much because first of all, everybody who does it seems to think that they invented it, but secondly, um, it goes together with this idea that the so-called enlightenment view of progress. Um, which was never a view that progress was necessary. It was only the view that progress was possible. Um, The Enlightenment view of progress has been shown to be utterly false by Auschwitz, Hiroshima, and the climate crisis, something like that, okay? Um, And again, um, this is a Hegelian view. This is, on some readings, a Marxist view. It is not a view of the Enlightenment. Okay, so that's a theoretical basis. And you get a lot of post-colonial theory, of course, comes out of the same, um, the same theoretical tradition. But the second thing that I believe we've forgotten to pay attention to is what happened in 1991 when the state socialism represented by the Soviet Union collapsed. It might have been a time at which the left said, hmm, what went wrong with state socialism? Are there other forms of socialism that might work out better? After all, there are many forms of capitalism. But I think it was such a shock that so many people who had spent decades talking about what kind of socialist they were, not whether or not they were a socialist, but, you know, am I a Maoist or... Um, how about a little Trotsky or whatever it was, people just keeled over and said, I guess this is the end of history. I guess there is no alternative to neoliberalism. And there is therefore no large universalist project that we can be a part of. So the only thing that we can do if we have an emotional left-wing commitment, that is, to the side of the underdog, to the side of the marginalized, to be on the side of the oppressed, the only thing we can do is, you know, smaller tribalist projects. So I think you have a theoretical and a historical component. I also think 2016 was a huge moment. I know you're writing about 2020, which was a huge moment too. Um, But So, I mean, woke is no longer the property of of students in American universities, okay? But it did start there. And it's, I don't think it's a generational thing. I think, I know lots of people in their 50s and 60s, people who are gatekeepers, who publishers, uh, you know, people who run theaters and various kinds of cultural institutions and newspapers who really, really don't want to be behind the youth. I think there's a, a, you know, a fear of losing, losing the youth. So they got on board. And this is as true in Berlin uh, as it is in New York, I think. I mean, I don't live in New York, but I follow what's going on there. So um, certainly Berlin is 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 very much in that direction. But it was initiated by people, you know, by college students. Now, we've all forgotten, and this is 
tragic. We've all forgotten what it felt like in 2008 when Barack Obama became president. And whether or not one agrees with this or that aspect of its policy, that was a moment in which we all of us felt that the arc of history was um, bending in the right direction. And I followed at the time the sort of international response to that election. And um, it, it really did feel that way for much of the world. It was incredible, okay? Eight, eight years went by and it felt normal. Um, if you were a child um, or even a young teenager, in 2008, you grew up with the idea that having an extraordinarily uh, intelligent, um, decent, and by the way, really cool black family in the White House for eight years was the norm representing the United States, okay? Um, and you might have disagreed with this or that policy, but you know, that you had a a completely different base as a norm. And you thought, okay, you know, we there's still things we need to work on, we, but we can go forward on that base. And the backlash that Trump's election produced, I think produced a sense of, you know, complete dislocation, again, once again, around the world, because you've had, uh, you know, people taking lessons from Trump, from Modi to... Uh, Netanyahu to Bolsonaro to et cetera. That is, if the Americans, president of the United States does it, we can be just as corrupt and vulgar as, uh, as he is. So I think you had this real shock to the system in 2016 that it's once again, it's this moment that people are saying, rather than acknowledging what a shock it really was, People are saying, oh, I always knew, and Obama wasn't all that great, and really he was just another neo you know, those kinds of things. And I don't think that's true to the moments that we lived through. I don't know what you think about that. but To get back into your, uh, into your fascinating book, you, you spend time, you mentioned Foucault before, but you spend time with Foucault, Heidegger, and also, also Schmidt as kind of counterintuitive thinkers that have led to where the woke left is now. How did you choose these particular thinkers to focus on in, in left is not woke? I guess I think woke is not left. I'm no, it's left is actually <laughs> the, oh, it, it, it goes both ways actually. Um, and the, uh, the German and the Dutch covers actually show that um, maybe the uh, English one will eventually too um, in paper. But um, look, I guess I think they're the theorists who have had the most influence. So um, Foucault is the most cited theorist in post-colonial theory. He just, um, that's Foucauldians um, say that. Um, and also, I, although I don't have a, anybody who's counted this, I do think he's the most read um, person, you know, in sort of undergraduate uh, study of just about anywhere. Schmidt is less commonly read, partly because there are those who rightly think 
mm, he was a Nazi, wasn't he? And then they try to apologize for it in some way or another. Well, he wasn't really a Nazi. Actually, he was way worse Nazi, um, as was Heidegger, than people like to acknowledge. But the interesting thing is, I, I cannot quite figure out why Foucault gets to pass as somebody who was uh, emancipatory. He did say he was emancipatory at various times. And he had a kind of, uh, you know, what the French uh, call a habitus, right? Um, and he was openly gay, even transgressively so, at a time when people hadn't even begun to dream about gay marriage or marriage equality or um, any of the kinds of things that we now hopefully take for granted. Um, but his, his work was at best quietist. And you know who actually said that, which is um, interesting? I wouldn't have expected to find that out, but I did recently. Edward Said, who in um, Orientalism looks as if he's quite influenced by, by Foucault and later turns against him very strongly. Um, so, so that's interesting. Anyway, I, but I picked out Schmidt because he's had a kind of weird influence in certain kinds of at least originally left-wing circles. And he's invested with an awful lot of importance that I don't think he actually has. So you, But you see um, in so-called realist politics, right, and realist politics, um, particularly in so-called realist foreign policy, namely, you know, principled, uh, principled claims are all reducible to power claims. I mean, it's also a Foucauldian claim. And those who think that they're um, acting according to liberal principles are in fact just simply trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. And um, in fact, they're just involved in power, uh, power claims. Now, sometimes this is true. And the problem is, I think, are impressed by Schmidt because he points out liberal hypocrisies in the cases, say, of colonialism. He calls uh, the British Empire a monumental act of piracy. And he uh, quite rightly goes on about the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, the Monroe Doctrine is pretty offensive to even call that a doctrine. It is also a claim of we get to decide whatever happens in South America, um, you know, made by James Monroe and then repeatedly cited. It's not a doctrine. It's just a, you know, this is our territory and um, don't anybody... Um, try and challenge us for that. But the interesting thing that people who appeal to um, appeal to Schmidt, um, he makes those claims in 1942 uh, when Germany is at war with Britain and the United States. So he's not attacking colonialism as somebody who would like to demask colonialism uh, on its own terms. He's simply saying, you know, the so-called liberal powers get to do this too. So Germany can 
go on and colonize the East all the way to Vladivostok. And this somehow doesn't get to be seen. But nevertheless, um, it is sometimes, it is something that you see once again without ever opening a page of Schmidt. It's a view that you can uh, see in almost any discussion of foreign policy today. So-and-so claims to, and you know, unfortunately the Biden administration isn't even pretending anymore. Um, although that was one of Biden's introductory um, claims when he came into office, we're going to bring American policy back to supporting democracy and human rights and all of that stuff. And then he rolls out the red carpet for Narendra Modi uh, and doesn't say a word. So, um, you know, that's a Schmidtian view. I mean, that's that just happens to be a Schmidtian view. And I would bet that Joe Biden never read a word of Carl Schmidt, but it's in the water system. It's in the air. Um, any any claim to be doing a principled foreign policy is um, is simply a bunch of hype. And, you know, when something um, helps our friends, it's um, it's the thing to do. And when something hurts our enemies, it's the things to do. And there are no principles involved. At least Barack Obama, when he, you know, uh, Narendra Modi couldn't get a visa, I mean, because of the pogrom in, um, in Gujarat many years ago. It was before he was prime minister, but he was in charge of it. When Obama decided to give him a visa, at least he felt he had to justify it. And the justification was getting India to sign on to the Paris Climate Agreement. And Obama made that claim. And there's an argument that, you know, the priority should be getting everyone to sign on to the Paris Climate Agreement because the entire earth will perish um, so that you can even shake hands with a fascist and let him come to you. And that's, sorry, my Indian friends um, make no bones about um, that claim. But at least Obama felt he had to justify something. Uh, and he certainly didn't give a state dinner. Um, Biden doesn't feel he has to um, make a justification. This is our friend and China and Russia are um, looking like our foes these days. Basta. I'm not sure if Biden is either left or woke. Uh, and I've been it's been interesting, the conversation around Obama's legacy. The people that we would lump under the category woke seem to reject him as a neoliberal kind of fascist, uh, at least on the social media discourse. So it's it's hard to know where to peg uh, people like that who present themselves as left but are not really accepted so, as left. So I don't think he's left. I agree that he's a neoliberal and he's, you know, he's clearly his cold warrior um, days are coming up. So he's a liberal cold warrior. Um, but, you know, one of the things that he clearly tried to do as, uh, you know, an older white man looking to, um, you know, get votes was to say, um, I'm going to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. Why did he have to undermine? I'm sure Katanji Brown Jackson is as good a justice as you'll find anywhere. Okay. I absolutely loathe it when 
um, people refer to my gender as a reason for giving me a, you know, a job or a promotion or a contract or other. And I cannot imagine that anybody who's actually worked as hard as she clearly has um, to a achieve what she's achieved wants to be appointed because she's a black woman. Um, and that's the kind of, uh, I mean, so I think he's combining a liberal uh, slash neoliberal politics with an attempt to appeal to the woke and even to think in woke terms. Right? Is that a kind of a, is that a kind of a mask uh, that allows a kind of cover then, or or is it something that you said is in the kind of in the it's ambient in the atmosphere and is not thought through? Um, so I don't know. I can't get inside uh, Joe Biden's soul or mind, and I I've no idea what's a matter of tactics and what's a matter of conviction. But I certainly think it's a matter of the confusion that's going on mm. um, between left and woke or liberal left and woke. And that's why I wrote this book. I mean, look, um, the New York Times is a neoliberal institution, um, you know, all the way through, but they've been a center of woke since 2019. All right. Um, that is, you do not have, you can, you can be neoliberal and be woke. Um, and you can certainly be liberal and be woke. I mean, where I think people get confused is that people who are woke have emotions that are traditionally uh, liberal left, right? The, there's a German saying, the heart beats on the left. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in a, in, a, in a conflict between the powerful and the powerless, um, you know, if your heart goes out to the powerless, at least initially, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying believe women and every, you know, but if your heart initially goes for sympathy with the powerless, um, you know, then you're liberal left and woke. Okay. The problem is, uh, and this is where people get confused is that while I do think the woke are driven by emotions that I share, they're infected by a whole bunch of philosophical assumptions that I think are ultimately reactionary. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to hear a full extended version of the episode, it's available now for Intelligence Squared members. Head to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or hit the try free slash subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to sign up to our newsletter via the link in the episode description.